I have known from the get-go that I would be clashing with uh, not only her, but, but some of you when it comes to the book of Revelation, clashing with myself. I promise you, almost every week as I prepare, I, I wonder, what do I believe? Where am I on this? I'm glad, though, and I'm not so sure you're glad, but I'm glad that, that that bit of indecisiveness has not kept me from preaching through the book. I hope it has been a blessing to you. You know from the get-go, that's what the Lord promised to us from Revelation chapter 1. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so I hope that it's been a blessing to you. We're going to hear another one of those blessings in just a bit. I wanted to start out as we look at Revelation 15 and 16. I hope to get through it all, but who knows. But I want to read to you maybe a couple pages, so hang with me, from J.I. Packer, wonderful, wonderful theologian, and this is probably his most famous and lasting book among many of them called Knowing God. This is chapter 15, The Wrath of God. Wrath is an old English word defined in my dictionary as deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation as Righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. Such is wrath. And wrath, the Bible tells us, is an attribute of God. The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it to an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often during the past year did you hear, or if you are a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? I read that sentence and I thought, phew, because I have been mentioning it. How long is it, I wonder, since a Christian spoke straight on this subject on radio or television or in one of those half-column sermonettes that appear in some national dailies and magazines? And if one did so, how long would it be before he would be asked to speak or write again? The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. We may well ask whether this is as it should be, for the Bible behaves very differently. One cannot imagine that talk of divine judgment was ever very popular, yet the biblical writers engage in it constantly. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, writes, A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God 
than there are to his love and tenderness. The Bible labors the point that just as God is good to those who trust in him, so he is terrible to those who do not. And then he quotes from Nahum. The Lord is a jealous God and avengeth. The Lord avengeth and is full of wrath. The Lord taketh vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken asunder by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that put their trust in him, but he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. I could go on, but you'll see in chapter 15, verse 1, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Verse 7, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Then in chapter 16, verse 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. We have seen the seven seal judgments. We have seen the seven trumpet judgments. And now we will see the seven bowls poured out upon the earth. And again, John says these are the bowls of the wrath of God. In doing so, it seems that we're getting closer and closer to the end. When I say end, I mean the return of Jesus Christ the judgment, the full judgment of his enemies and the establishment of his forever kingdom. In, chap- in verse 1 again, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And over in chapter 16, verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So it seems that we are approaching the end, the coming of Jesus Christ in the day of his wrath and salvation for his people. From the seals, from the trumpets, and now in the bowls, it seemingly is going to intensify and become more severe in what we read. We're approaching the end. One thing to say, I think, as we begin is there in the midst of the holiness of God are his people singing his praise. We'll briefly look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. We saw this sea of glass back in chapter 4, going out before the throne of God, immense. 
And it may have the idea that between us and God, there is this great separation. He is holy, and we are not. But John saw this sea of glass mixed with fire, but then who else does he see? Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding the harps of God. There are the people of God. While God is holy and we are sinful, those who conquer, those who through trust in Jesus Christ have been forgiven and reconciled to him, there they are, standing upon this sea and singing his praise. In verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, You'll remember in the book of Exodus, whenever the Israelites were redeemed out of bondage by the blood of the Lamb and brought into fellowship with God, they sang God's praise in Exodus chapter 15. And so John says that they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here we go. The last of these judgments before the end. I do not know if I have it right here. But I wonder as I read this chapter, if if this is not meant to be a part of the message, if not the message. It's a reiteration of something I said and preached when we looked at the trumpet judgments, but then it adds to it, I think. The stuff of earth, along with the sinister fiends of the heavenlies, I'll show you what I'm talking about in a minute, won't deliver in the day of judgment, in the day of God's wrath. God's wrath is about to be poured out. And the stuff of earth will not deliver nor will the beast, nor will the dragon, nor will the, will the false prophet. They will be shown to be empty. 
Verse 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image. I understand those who have the mark of the beast and who worship the image to be non-Christians. Those who give their allegiance by the grace of God to Jesus Christ are sealed by him. They have a mark on their forehead. It's not a literal mark. It's the sealing of the Holy Spirit that you belong to God. And those who do not give their allegiance to Christ, but rather their allegiance to other things under the dominion of Satan, they bear the mark of the beast. These are unbelievers. And reading it along with the trumpet judgment upon the earth and now this bold judgment upon the earth, I wonder if this word of judgment is that Again, the things that we look to upon the earth will not deliver us in the day of God's judgment. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. If you'll remember back in the trumpet judgments, whenever the first trumpet was blown and judgment came upon the earth, it was a third of the trees and the grass and the land that were destroyed. And, and the second trumpet, it was a third of the sea became blood and a third of the things died. But here it is all. The sea, the entire sea became like blood and every living thing in the sea died. Again, is this looking to something that's going to literally happen in these last days? It could be. Or is this not the apocalyptic, symbolic language that is so often found in this book? John sees something that is symbolizing something. It's pointing to something. And I wonder if it's not pointing to, not only do we look to the earth, but also to the sea. Some would write about it and talk about all of the commercial activity that takes place upon the seas, the travel for leisure, the commercial enterprise of fishing and shipping and international trade. So many look to that and the fortunes that can be had rather than looking to Christ. Verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Again, in the trumpets, the third trumpet, it was judgment upon a third of the rivers and springs of water, and now it seemingly is all of them. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets 
and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. How to exactly make this out, I'm not sure, but I think this point is being made by John. The wrath of God is coming. And sinners are being judged and will be separated from God forever. And John seems to anticipate what many of us would do. Wait a minute, that seems harsh. God is too harsh, for we sinners don't deserve that. God is wrong. We're not that bad. What does the angel say? I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you. You're the Holy One. They deserve it. Oh, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Whenever you and I read about the judgment of God that's coming upon unbelievers, it doesn't always sit well with us. We might begin to think less of God and more of ourselves. But the angel from heaven reminds us that God is holy and God is righteous and all of his ways are just. And that we sinners deserve it. You remember, I didn't intend this when I chose that passage that Cody read for us, but that thief on the cross... What did he say to his buddy over there? We are getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. My good buddy Justin Pfeiffer says, Hey, I'm like the mailman. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. Right? God wrote this mail, and you and I are meant simply to deliver it. That the day of God's holy and righteous and just wrath is coming. And we sinners deserve it. So flee to Christ. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. The earth, the sea, the rivers, the sun, the stuff of earth to which we often look for life and security and significance and the like in the day of God's wrath will not deliver. Remember several weeks ago talking on this theme, I quoted Rich Mullins. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance we owe only to the giver of all good things. In our 
sin, we are so tempted to just look at the things that we can see, feel, taste, hear, and the like, the things that we can experience through our senses, the, the earth, the sea, the rivers, the sun that gives us light and warmth and all of those wonderful things. And we make the mistake that that's all that is. And if I'm going to be safe and secure and significant and satisfied, I've got to find it in those things. But again, the Bible reminds us that that our experience is not merely the stuff of earth, the stuff that we can experience through our senses. There's an entirely another realm of God. And we are to look to Him. In the day of God's wrath, these things will not deliver. Nor will, and I called them the sinister fiends of the heavenlies. In verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkness. You remember the beast is the coming Antichrist. The dragon in the book of Revelation is Satan, and it appears that as we get closer and closer to the end and the coming of Christ, that he is going to empower a person. And John calls him the beast. And that beast is going to rise and influence and power apparently over the whole world. And he will have his sidekick, the false prophet, his right-hand man, his lieutenant, however we might like to describe him, that will seek to deceive the world into giving their allegiance to the beast. The beast will be a world ruler, and he will make many wonderful promises to the people. Follow me, and life will be good for you. He seemingly will set himself up as the benefactor. I will meet your needs. I will make you happy. Worship me. Look to me. Trust in me. And so many will. John said in 1 John that there have been many antichrists in the world and the antichrist is coming. And so throughout history, There has been that temptation from the devil in the world to look away from Christ elsewhere for life. But in this day of God's judgment, the throne of the beast and his kingdom will be darkened. They gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The Antichrist and all of his promise will be shown to be empty and a liar and a deceiver and weak and powerless before Christ. 
But we have to note, at the end of both the fourth judgment, bold judgment, and this fifth, what did humanity continue to do? They blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. They did not repent so as to give him glory. And again in verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not repent because of their deeds. It's a sad picture of humanity, isn't it? Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 that man in in his sin deserves God's wrath now, but God is being patient and showing kindness towards sinners in order that they might come to repentance. But because of their stubbornness, An unrepentant heart, Paul says, they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and righteous indignation of God. God is being patient with them, calling to them, and they continue in their rebellion against him, their hardness of heart, they do not repent, and here it is again. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. We saw this reference to the Euphrates back in the trumpet judgments. And here it it is again. The Euphrates is a river to the east of Israel. And so many of their ancient enemies would cross the Euphrates River to come against them. The Assyrians did. The Babylonians did. Later on and then somewhat earlier than John's day, it was the Parthians that did. And so this reference to the Euphrates River Well, let's continue to read. The sixth angel poured out his bowl bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. The enemies of Israel would come across the Euphrates River from the east. And this vision that John sees of the Euphrates River being dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east probably carries that idea of of the enemies of God, the enemies of his people. Is it a literal reference in the future of a dried up Euphrates River with, with nations from the east, from the orient coming across? I'm not so sure about that. John goes on to tell us that indeed it's not merely kings from the east who will come, 
but which they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the great for the war of the great day of God the almighty they think that they're coming to a battle against God and his anointed which they're going to win read a story to you that, that may be in mind here from 1 Kings chapter 22. This is King Ahab. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab was a wicked king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and his judgment is about to come. And the Lord asks a question, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then the Lord said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. A few verses later. A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of his armor so that he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening and the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset saying, every man to his city and every man to his country. God's judgment was going to come upon King Ahab, and he was deceived to go into battle, and apparently these here, not apparently, they are being deceived by these demonic spirits coming forth from Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Come on, let's war against God and his anointed. I wonder, the kings of the earth, the powerful people of this earth, in all of their pride, in all of their arrogance, in all of their hopes of control and totalitarian reign over their people and the power and the prestige and all that they get from that. Their hatred for being underneath the authority of God, their hatred for the gospel message, their hatred for Christians and the people of God. It sounds to me like Psalm 2. 
that as they take their stand against God and against his people, it will not go well for them. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? What's the vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear their feathers apart and cast their cords from us. God's response to this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then the Messiah speaks, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And then in light of this, here's the, the call to the kings of the earth. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, God, the Son of God, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Many of folks have believed the lie from Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, the, the, the lawlessness that has been in the world and is coming, that you can set yourself against God and against Christ and it will go well for you. They've been deceived by it and they will be destroyed by it. Verse 16, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Megiddo was a valley where many battles were fought. The, the enemies of Israel fought them there. And this may be, in this, John calls this Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. There, there is no mountain in Megiddo. It's a valley. But it may be that when John talks about Armageddon, that, that his readers' minds would say, yes, that's the place where the enemies of God would often come against his people. And here these enemies are being drawn to their defeat, which we see with the seventh. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. If you'll remember, I think if I, if I read them right, the seal judgments, the sixth seal as we got to the end of them has language just like this that we, we said is a reference to the second coming of Christ. As you got to the seventh trumpet the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the seals took us to the end. The judgments took us to the end. Now the bowls 
I think, are taking us to the end. There were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city, that's not Jerusalem in context, that's Babylon. We'll see more of that next week. The great city, Babylon, the city of man that opposes God's ways, the world system over which Satan has dominion, was split into three parts, disintegrated. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Seems to me that this is the language of the day of the Lord, when Christ is going to come and judge his enemies. A few more minutes. We skipped a verse. New American Standard puts it in parentheses in verse 15. It's almost a little aside. But Jesus reminds us, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. This theme about Christ coming like a thief is a theme throughout the New Testament, and it speaks to the fact that thieves do not announce when they are coming. It is a surprise. But the reality is that for, for God's people, we do, don't know when he is coming but we do know that he is coming. When Paul talks about Christ coming as a thief in the night in 1 Thessalonians 5, he sets up the contrast between those who are in the dark and those who are in the light. And those who are in the dark are non-believers who live and go about their lives in the dark to what God is doing in the world and in the dark to the second coming of Jesus to bring judgment upon his enemies and salvation to his people. But then Paul says of the Thessalonians, of you and me, but you're not of the darkness, you're of the light. Meaning, we know that Christ is coming again. We may not know when, and we're not so much meant to try to determine when. But we do know that he will come. And that is meant to lead to a different kind of life for you and for me. Here Jesus says, the one who stays awake, in chapter, Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says he's going to come like a thief, on the alert, be on the alert, be ready. In Luke 12, be on the alert. In, verse, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, be alert and sober, be sober, marked by faith, love, 
and hope. We live our lives in light of his coming. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Some, some take this to be the, the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus with which we are clothed. And I nod my head to that. Others build upon that and say, in, the idea seems to be that in light of the fact that we have been clothed by the righteousness of Christ, we are now to live out that righteousness in our daily lives. And so that Jesus is calling upon us, as he has throughout this book, to persevere. Continue to trust in him, continue to walk with him, continue to obey him. When you fall down, continue to confess your sins to him and keep coming back to Jesus over and over and over again. And the promise is blessing. We started this series in chapter 1 with that first blessing. And there are, not surprisingly, seven of them in the book of Revelation. And this is one of them. Let's remind ourselves of them in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. In chapter 14, verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Here in chapter 16, verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and people will not see his shame. In 19.9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 20 verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. 22.7, and behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 22.14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have a right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Tom Schreiner on all of those blessings, those beatitudes. It says, the sevenfold blessing probably signifies completeness and fullness in the blessing promised. The contents of the blessings all relate to future reward promised to believers, to bliss they will experience after a period of testing. So, believers, beloved, let us remind ourselves that the day of God's wrath is coming. Christ is coming. And as we look to him, trust in him, walk with him, we will experience blessing. 
not only in this life, but an eternal life in the age to come. Let me close with this. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're willing to admit it, the day of God's wrath is coming. This cup of wrath is going to be given to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. But what, what Christians rejoice in is the fact that when Jesus Christ came, he came on a rescue mission for sinners. And, and to do it, what he did was he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Jesus lived a holy life, and then before his death, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And three times over, he prayed to his Father, May this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. The cup is this cup of the wrath of God that sinners will drink but Jesus drank it for us when he died on the cross. He experienced the wrath of God for us upon the cross. And then God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven. He is alive now. And because of his life and his death and his resurrection, he offers to sinners like you and me, forgiveness and reconciliation to God. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you must. Paul says it is Jesus, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Turn to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son to drink the cup of the wrath of God for us. He died in our place and for our sins. You made him who knew no sin to be sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. We glory in Jesus. He's our salvation. We bless you, God, for him. And I pray for any here today who've never turned to him. Might they do that even this moment. In the quietness of their heart, realize that they are a sinner before God and as this scripture says, they deserve his wrath. Help them to, to own that but in owning it, God, might you um, draw them to the cross of Jesus, to the person of Jesus who can forgive them and give them the promise of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name.